0: Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 12 and uh, do the, continue our series on functioning in the body at, from the book of Romans. In this particular chapter, chapter 12 begins a practical section of Romans. Paul, in writing to this church at Rome, which was not the Roman Catholic church, but the church at Rome, he writes to communicate some vital information. He begins by laying out the concept of condemnation. We're, we're all under condemnation, and Paul teaches that. When he lays out condemnation, he begins to lay out the doctrine of justification or the doctrine of salvation, and he carefully lays out beginning in chapter 3, and then he begins to lay out the doctrine of our growth as Christians, known as sanctification, our ongoing continual growth to, in our being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, known as sanctification, And he continues that concept uh, through divine election through chapter 11. And the first 11 chapters of Romans form the doctrinal section of that great book. When you come to chapter 12, you begin to study the practical section. And Paul was known for laying out doctrine and then laying out how does that doctrine affect your life. So after writing the first 11 chapters, you come to chapter 12 and he says, therefore... And this, is, this becomes the practical section on through the end of the book, chapter 16. When you get into this particular chapter, in chapter 12, there's three significant things that Paul points out that are critical for life in the body. And he begins with verses that you're very familiar with. I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. That word, living sacrifice, is a contradiction of terms. It is a fascinating term. We are living sacrifices. All we, in other words, we're living, but in living we are dying. See, And it's, then he goes on and he says, how do you do this? He said, you present yourself as a living sacrifice, not by being conformed to the world, but by being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you will be able to prove what is the will of God, what is that perfect will of God. And so Paul begins there. And and in order for a church to function, we have to function as living sacrifices. So it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about Christ. And my life is lived in a way that it becomes all about Christ. And then he dives into what is known as the spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are essential for a church to function as a church needs to function. And so Paul takes time, beginning in verse 3, down through verse 8, and he addresses the issue of spiritual gifts. And that is a critical component. All of you are exercising your spiritual gifts. Now Paul is going to enter into the third section of this particular chapter, which is critical, and that is relational, because unity is relational. And for the remainder of the chapter, Paul is going to address the issue of relationships. He's going to do it in two ways. He's going to address, first of all, relationships in the church, and then he's going to address relationships outside the church at the end of the chapter, and he's going to end the chapter by saying this, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's chapter 12 of Romans. We've taken time to look at the spiritual gifts. What we want to do today is begin to look at this concept that unity is relational. Now, (laughs) that's a given, right? That's a given. So for us to say that is something that we should just simply understand. Now, Paul, is, in other passages, addresses the same issue. And let me just bring some verses up here to show you where Paul addresses this. He does so in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he says this, this is interesting. He says, "If I speak human or angelic language, but do not have love, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal." And he says, and if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And he goes on and he ends that, this introductory statement, he says, and if I donate all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Nothing. So if spiritual gifts are important in the function of church, the answer would be what? But is there something more important than spiritual gifts? Yes, there is. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 13, as Jesus' ministry is unfolding and really as it's beginning to wind down and he's headed to the cross, he says to his disciples, I'm going to give you a brand new commandment. This is something that's new. And he says, I give you a new commandment. Here's that new commandment love one another. Now, he doesn't just say love one another, he qualifies it. Okay? And he always does this. The Bible is always the Bible is always fascinating because it, it always defines itself. And our definitions and usage, you know, context is determined by usage. Uh, and, and, and grammar is determined by its usage. And so in the passage, Jesus always makes sure, you want to know what love is? I want to make sure you understand what love is. He said, just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. And so i to ask you this today. Is your love for each other And you pick out any name and ask this, is it patterned after Christ's love for you? That's what Jesus taught us to do. And then he says this, by this, all people. Now, that steps outside the church. Okay? We've just gone from saying this, disciples are known By their love for each other. Their love for each other is patterned after Christ's love for them. In other words, I am to love you no matter who you are the identical same way that Jesus loves me. So there's the pattern. And he said, that's internal. Now, here's what he says. Outside men, all people, he opens it up. All people will know that you are my disciples. So the difference between a disciple of Christ and someone in the world is this. We love each other the same way Jesus loved us. That's what he's saying. And that's how you're going to be known. But here's what they will know. Are you or are you not a disciple? The measuring stick is your love for each other and the measuring stick for your love for each other is how Jesus loved you. That's pretty tall standard. So I would say unity is relational, right? Now, as you get into this, Romans chapter 12, we want to look specifically at verses 9 to 13 today. And this is internal. This is going to be Jesus dealing with us internally. So let's take a look at this. He says, first, the challenge is your life as a believer must be governed by relational principles so the body of Christ or the church can function as a family. Okay. Now, let's get into this. The challenge is this the ultimate team. Now, I want to I preface this by saying this I played on basketball teams, I played on football teams, greatest sport I've ever invented. Right, Mike? And uh, Mike's rival, the killed us. Killed us. It was bad. I played in elementary school. I played in what used to be junior high school. I played in high school. I played in college. I played on a lot of different teams. Played in the rec leagues in town. Played, used to play wherever we could play. I want to tell you something. The hardest team to play on is the church. Nothing else is close. The church so many times functions like anything but a team. The church can be the nastiest place on the face of God's earth. The church can be the hardest on its own. The church can bite and devour each other. Being and getting unity in a church is the ultimate team challenge. No other team that you will ever play on will ever come close to this one. But there's a reason If I throw out to you, who won the Super Bowl five years ago? Most of you don't know, and many of you don't care. Because in the scope of eternity, it means absolutely nothing who won the Super Bowl five years ago or who will win the Super Bowl this year. In the scope of eternity, it does not matter. But what this team does as a church matters in the scope of eternity. Because we're all about introducing eternity to the lives of people that don't know it. And that's why you got Satan on the other end of the spectrum. And the one thing Satan has to get, he just has to go after one thing, one thing. Is all he needs. Get their unity. Disrupt their unity, you disrupt their work. Satan always shoots at your unity. Always. Always. Never anything else. I hope you get that. This is the ultimate team challenge. So let's dive into it. He says, first of all, love others genuinely. If you look at verse 9, it says this, love must be without hypocrisy. In other words, your love for each other is to be genuine. Love genuinely. That's hard, guys. That's the word agape right there. Agapeo. It's, it's really not even a command in this passage of Scripture. It's just saying, what it, the, the, the emphasis here is, must be is really the verb. Your love, which in this case is a noun, must be genuine. And in other words, it must be this. You're to love each other the same way Christ loved you. And if you don't do that, if you don't do that, Then it's hypocrisy. And Paul says, love must be without hypocrisy. That is a tough challenge right there. Secondly, he says this, commit to what is morally upright. He says in the passage, he says, detest evil, hate the evil, cling, cleave to that which is good. The idea of good here and this particular passage is in comparison to evil. It's in contrast to evil. So it's that which is morally upright. The church is to be the place that is morally upright. Okay. That's a struggle. That's a struggle. Okay. And, and that is an ongoing struggle. And so you have, the as he introduces this, this idea of unity is relational, the first thing he hits us with is agapeo. In other words, agapeo means this. Agape means this it is this. I will sacrifice myself for you. Your best interest and your growth is more important than my best interest or my growth. Agape always puts the object loved before the one doing the loving. Exactly what Jesus did to us when he went to the cross. If Jesus would have put himself first, he wouldn't have been on that cross. But what Jesus did on the cross is he put us before himself, and he was crucified at that cross because we were the object of his agapeo, his agape love. He saw us, and he sacrificed himself for the sake of that. And then the idea of cleave to what is morally good. Okay? Then he gets into bond is family, church as a family. This, this phrase Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. This is an interesting phrase, okay? There's two words in this uh, particular phrase that are interesting. The word brotherly love is what? The city of it's Philadelphia. That's the Greek word, Philadelphia. At the end of the year, at the end here, in the construction in the Greek, it's at the, it's at the beginning. Brotherly love, show with family affection, is the way the verse literally reads but there's a word here. This word family affection is interesting. It's the word philistorge. It's the only time in the New Testament that this particular word is used. It's a a different word. It's It's tough to understand what words really mean when it's only used one time, but here it means this. It would mean this. You know how you love your children? Love each other that way. This one would define your love for your children is the measure of your love for each other in the church. Philistorge. Pretty powerful love, guys. Most of you here as parents would do this. If you had to lay down your life for your children, you wouldn't think twice about it. It'd be done in an instant. Would you lay down your life for each other in here? In an instant? Or is there anybody in here that you wouldn't lay your life down for? If there's anybody in here that you wouldn't lay your life down for, then before the day's over, you need to go to that person, and you need to make it right with that person. Because what he says is, show family affection, or this way, the same measure that you love your children, show to one another. And then he does this to make it more powerful. He says, with Philadelphia, with brotherly love. This is a powerful, powerful statement. In in grammatical construction, Paul could not give us a more powerful statement right there, and it cannot be translated into English where it's totally comprehensive as to what exactly Paul is saying and the power with which he is saying it. Show family affection. Show the same love that you do for your kids to one another, and on top of that, pile brotherly love. You think Paul's emphasizing? Bond as family. Now, I want to tell you this. That is the ultimate team challenge. Right there. Right there. And then he said, respect each other with honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. There's the challenge. Now, these guys keep showing up. I don't know why, but he wants to talk now about our attitude. Chapter 12, Paul just keeps hammering and hammering and hammering attitude because attitude is everything, okay? And so he's going to not only show us the ultimate team challenge, but now he's going to show us attitude with which we're to do this. And sometimes the difference is motivation and attitude, okay? So the ultimate team challenge here is, I'm going to get rid of these guys one of these days, it's this. Discipline. Look what he says in verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Or he could say it this way do not be lazy in zeal. Wow. Disciplined. Not lazy or not unfocused. The hardest thing you'll ever do in your life is maintain relationships inside the church. The hard, let me say it again, the hardest thing you will ever do is maintain relationships in the church. You have got to be zealous. You have got to approach this disciplined. You cannot be lazy. You cannot be unfocused. You must stay focused. You must stay uh, not slothful. You must stay zealous. You've got to be disciplined. And that's an attitude. That's an attitude. Second thing he says is be passionate or on fire. The common English Bible translates this be on fire, be fervent in spirit. So we've got zealousness. Now we've got fervency. I'm going to be on fire. What am I on fire about? What gets us? I'm going to maintain the relationships. I'm going to love one another in the church. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to be zealous, and I'm going to be fervent. In other words, I am going to be passionate about relationships inside the church. And then he says this, motivated. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord. Because in doing this, understand Grasp who you're serving. I look at marriage this way. I love my wife. But I don't love my wife because she's my wife. This may sound not so good, so I hope I can get it around to being right. I love my wife because I want to be obedient to God, and God told me to love my wife the same way Christ loved the church. She's the recipient. If my relationship with Christ is right, then my relationship with my wife is going to grow out of that relationship. And it's about this first, this second. And she always says, as long as I'm number two in your life, I'm happy. Your love for each other is not based upon who each other may or may not be, what each other may or may not have done. Your love for each other is based upon this. Christ told you to love one another. And in doing so, you are serving the Lord. So, if I don't love you, the way Christ loved me. Who am I serving? Your motivation is this. I love you because Christ loved me. And that's the motivation. And that's what Paul is addressing. Now, guys, realize this was a problem at Rome. Guess what's going on at Rome, in the church at Rome? This is what they were struggling with. Paul had to address it, so he does. Now let's look at the principles of this thing, because there are some really neat principles that he gives in this passage of Scripture, and it's kind of the here's how you do it, okay? He said you do this by rejoicing in hope. Verse 12 says rejoice in hope. That's an interesting word. I I love this word, joy in hope okay because obviously rejoice its root word is joy so the idea here is you want joy and hope those two words combined together are really powerful words rejoice and hope but hope is interesting because hope does this hope always looks forward always looks forward that's hope you realize the best is what the best is yet to come for us The best is always before us. That's the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews can be summarized in three, really, three statements. He said, uh, the, the, The future is better than the past. That's Hebrews. Hebrews is the new is better than the old. That's Hebrews. What's new is better than what's old. What's future is better than what's past but where do we tend to live? We tend to live where? In the past. And when we live in the past, what disappears is hope because hope doesn't look to the past. Hope always looks to the future. And if you're not looking to the future, you've lost hope. You're going to go into despair. When you go into that, you're going to struggle with each other. So Paul says, rejoice in hope. You're always, always, always. But you you know what he did in the past? Don't look back. Forgetting those things which are behind, I press where? See, it's Paul. Then he says this, endurance in tribulations, patience. The word patient in the Bible can almost always be translated endure. Endurance in tribulations. You need tribulations. All of us need tribulations. It, it is just the heat that God sends our way. If everything went perfect and smooth, we'd settle into such a rut, we'd never climb out. God doesn't ever let us settle into a rut. He doesn't ever, ever let things go the way we expect them to go. There's always trials. There's always things. i been teaching this class on gospel treason, dealing with idols of the heart. I've I got to tell you what, I'll tell you what I, my idol of the heart is. Here's my eye out of the heart. I live in the world of expectation. That's my, that, that's, because I see, th- I told a class today, I see things in my head. I see things. And I can literally visualize stuff. It's the weirdest thing. I can visualize it. It's like when we go, go- I told them this morning, when I go golf and I get on these golf teams, you know, where we do these tournaments, they ask me to go. They only ask me to go for one reason. I can putt. I can't drive, I can't chip, but get on the green, I can putt. I'll tell you why I can putt. I literally can see the line on the green. It's the weirdest thing. It's the weirdest thing. But I get there, and I look, and I literally can see a line of how it should go. So they always ask me, the guys that play with me a lot, they always ask me, what do you see? What do you see? Well, at the same time, I, and I, I, can, I say, here's what I see, and, and I can see the line. That's my head. That's my brain. I can see things. Okay? The problem is it leads into the world of expectations. And expectations never work out. And so tribulations are the real part of life. Because I envision a marriage that has no problems or no issues. That's what I envisioned when we walked down an aisle 40-some years ago, that we're just going to have a perfect marriage. And if my wife would just line up, it'd be great. (laughs) It didn't work, did it? The best thing for our marriage over the years has been constant, ongoing tribulations that push us together to work together. And the best thing for a church is tribulations that come because they push you together. They'll either do one of two things they're going to push you together or they're going to push you apart. You can't stop the tribulations, you cannot stop the tribulations. You go from one to the next, and when they come, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to push you apart, or they're going to pull you together. And if they're pushing you apart, you've got to stop and say, whoa, let's stop this train right now, and let's see what's going on. Endurance in the midst of tribulation, constant in prayer. I've come to believe this, just my own personal. You can take it or toss it, whatever you want. Prayer, when it's mentioned in Scripture, can be translated dependency. It's my dependency on Christ. It's my dependency on God. That's prayer. There's all kind of different words for prayer. There's supplications, there's intercessions, there's there's different words that are used in the New Testament for prayer. But whenever the word prayer is used, it's almost always in this context of I am coming because I am in need of God. And I need what he has. And so in the midst of all of this, as you go through this, the one thing you need is the only way you can ever meet this ultimate team challenge is if you are constant in prayer, asking God to help you as a person to be able to maintain this relationship and be able to love others the way Christ loved you. Constant in prayer. The practical. couple thoughts for you. Partner with needs. Koineia is the Greek word. Contribute to the needs of the saints. When you see needs, partner with them. That's what this says. So as you look around and you see amongst you and you see someone with a need, koineia. Partner with that need. Go contribute to it. Secondly, fellowship with God's people. Verse 13, seek to show hospitality. Okay? That's fellowship. It's fellowship. Then he says this. And I'll say it this way to you. How do you know what your spiritual gift is? Probably by what you see that needs attention, probably is the greatest thing to reveal your needs. We see differently. We see different things. What you see is probably a window into how God has gifted you. Contribute to those needs. I want to quit with this. What is a gospel-centered church? What does it look like? Let me give you a couple thoughts. This, I'm going to steal this from our gospel trees in class. And I think this defines the gospel in a way that we can understand it. Number one... I am the problem because I am a sinner. I am the problem because I am a sinner. Paul addressed this. Paul said it this way. I am chief of sinners. I'll show you how you can figure this out. Those of you that are married, you husbands, go home today, sit down around a table and have a serious conversation with your wife and tell her she's the problem in your marriage. Let me know how it works out for you, okay? Wives, go home and look at your husband square in the face and say, the problem with this marriage is you, okay? I know over the years of having counseling people, when I get a couple that comes in and sits down in front of me and the husband starts saying, this wife, I know immediately what? This guy. I am the problem because I am a sinner. That has to be the mentality that all of us have. In fact, if you're sitting here today thinking this, no, I'm not the problem, he is. Oh, I'm not the problem, she is. Guess what? That's called gospel treason right there. That's gospel treason. I am the problem. I am the problem. I can tell you coming in with IPM, I've made mistakes. Did you expect me to be perfect? Did you expect me not to make mistakes? Were you living in a world of expectation like I do? I've made mistakes. Why? I'm the problem. Because I'm a sinner. And if all of us would take that attitude... I'm the problem. That's the gospel. That's a gospel-centered church. A A gospel treason church is this. No, no, no. He, she's the problem. That's gospel treason. Secondly, Jesus is the answer and the cross is the provision. Okay? Now, in order for you to become a Christian, you had to do this. You had to say, I am the sinner, I am the problem. You had to come to the cross, you had to bow at the cross, you had to humble yourself at the cross, and you had to say, God, forgive me, I am a sinner. It was at the cross where it all took place, where we were humbled. Jesus is the answer. The cross is the solution. And if we as a church can say this, I'm the problem, but Jesus is the solution. That's a gospel centered church. Okay? But a gospel treason church is you're the problem, here's the answer. Now, third thing I want you to see forgiveness is the medicine, and I must always seek it. Okay? Guys spoke on forgiveness last week. Forgiveness is the medicine. You know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is this this is the definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the promise never to bring it up again in a judgmental way. That's forgiveness. I will never bring up this issue again in a judgmental way. So, when you came to the cross and you bowed at the cross and you said to Jesus, I am a sinner, and Jesus says, I forgive you, what Jesus is saying is this I will never bring up your sin again in a judgmental way, ever. And he never does. He never does. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is the medicine. That's hard. Forgiveness is absolutely and total humility, and it's humbling. I've got to beat you to the cross. But I will always say this to you. I will always beat you to the cross. I will always beat you to the cross. Wow, you offended me. Then I will beat you to the cross. I'm going to out-gospel you. I'll beat you to the cross. Let's go to the cross. Let's bow there. See, I'll extend. I'll ask for Forgiveness. Okay, I will always ask for forgiveness. Hardest thing in the world to do, isn't it? But I will always, the gospel says, forgiveness is the medicine, I must seek it. That's gospel. Here's the next thing. Grace is the remedy, and I must extend it. Now I want to show you this, because this is critical. When I come to you and I say to you, I am asking you to forgive me. I put you in a unique position. Okay, The position I now put you in is a position to extend grace to me. And when forgiveness is asked for and grace is extended, that's the point of grace right there. So what is a gospel-centered church? A gospel-centered church is a people that recognize their own sinfulness, recognize the Savior, always seek forgiveness, and always extend grace when forgiveness is asked. Well, you say he wasn't sincere. Well, then let's get to the cross and we'll deal with sincerity. No problem. Because we're, no matter what you come, we're going to the cross, we're going to bow there. And if you think I wasn't sincere, I'll ask you to forgive me for not appearing sincere. We'll just go to the cross again. And when we get to the cross and I ask for your forgiveness and you extend grace, That's the point of grace. That's a gospel centered church, right there. Right there. I like to joke around with my wife and say this in marriage. The key to my marriage is this Honey, you're right. You're always right. Even when you're wrong, you're right. We joke about it. I used to think that a marriage, a great marriage, was after going through conflict and trial and struggling for the first couple of years, I thought a great marriage is you'll get to a point where you don't have any struggles anymore and you just kind of cruise it in. What I find is that the struggles just keep getting harder and harder and harder, and harder, and harder. But it's the only way we would ever grow. And it's God's grace. As long as we understand this, I'm going to out-gospel you. I'm going to beat you to the cross. And when I beat you to the cross and I ask for your forgiveness, you have the wonderful privilege of extending Grace. And when you extend grace, you're a grace-centered church. If you don't extend grace, that's not good. The last thing is this. Reconciliation is the product, and I always pursue it. So if I am having problems in the church, and you will always have problems in the church, I always pursue forgiveness. I always extend grace. And I always pursue, maintain relationships, reconciliation, reconciliation. When you came to the cross, you were at odds with God. You came to the cross and said, God, I'm the sinner. You're the Savior. Would you forgive me? I sure will. I'll extend grace. And what happened at that moment in time was I was reconciled to God Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. That's a gospel centered church right there. You want to be gospel centered? Simply this I am the problem. Gospel centered church, Jesus is the answer. Gospel centered church, Forgiveness is the medicine. i got to take it. Gospel-centered church, grace is the remedy. I must extend it. Reconciliation is the product. That's a gospel-centered church. And so you're going to constantly go through struggles that are going to test you. And they're going to test you at the level of the gospel. And so Paul writes love one another as Christ loved you. Mount Calvary Church, we believe the Bible describes believers as members of a body with the expectation that we all contribute to the body for the common purpose the glory of God. That's the body of Christ. And I quit with this today. This What reconciliation needs to take place here today? Who do you have in your mind that is a problem? What do you need to go to someone with and ask for forgiveness? Who may come to you and ask forgiveness and you not extend grace? who are you not extending grace to? A grace-centered church is a church where we realize we're all sinners. We're all in need of forgiveness. We're all in need of grace. And when all that falls in line, there's going to be reconciliation. So do you have anybody in mind today that's offended you? Or do you have anybody that you have offended? And would we allow today the Spirit of God to humble us? And would we be willing today to run to the cross, hit our face on our knees, say, God, I'm the problem. I'm here to beg for forgiveness. Would we be willing to do that with each other today? I I know I offend people come to me come to me love to talk to you only thing I'll do I promise this I'll beat you to the cross I'll beat you to the cross because I'm chief of sinners I am the problem do you see yourself that way or do you say no no here's the problem Here's the problem. I pray today that the Spirit of God would just work in our hearts. Because what every church needs, not only Mount Calvary Church, whatever church needs is reconciliation. But reconciliation only comes on the problem. Jesus is the solution. Forgiveness is the medicine. Grace is the remedy. Reconciliation is the product. If there's anybody today, there's anybody today that you need to go to, go. If you need to make a telephone call or if you need to get in your car today and you need to drive, go. This is the ultimate team challenge. You will never be a team that will impact this community until you are willing to say, I'm the problem. Jesus is the solution. Forgiveness is the medicine, grace is the remedy, and reconciliation is the product. I pray God works in all of our hearts, all of our hearts, to bring about a reconciliation at Mount Calvary Church that this town would be able to say, they love each other. They love each other the same way Jesus loves them. It could impact your community in an incredible way. God, we bow before you today praying that our hearts would be humble. We are sinners. I am. We did get to the cross because we knew without the cross we were helpless and hopeless. But when we came to the cross and sought your forgiveness, you lavishly poured out upon us grace incredible grace, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me pray today God if there's any relationships that aren't right in here today that every one of us in this building this morning every one of us in this auditorium this morning would not leave this place until they're right And would live our life fervently, zealously, and passionately maintaining right relationships. Knowing Satan is going to do everything he can to disrupt them. God, don't let them be victorious in Mount Calvary Church. Bring healing. Bring healing to all of us. Because only you are the solution. And we desperately need you. This is our prayer. We pray it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, for the glory of our Father, God Almighty. And may this community see this is a church that loves each other the way Christ loved them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.